as uh, Lorenzo had mentioned, uh, last week Stephen preached on uh, creation, and uh, there we had explored together how the world began, and seeing through the book of Genesis how the world began, we understood that creation is a reflection of God. Creation is a reflection of God's beauty and his goodness. And I want us to sink, sink in that truth. I want that to sink in. Um, I, I'm a native New Yorker and um, you know I love the city and everything, but I oftentimes, I love to go to, um, I love to go outside of the city, outside of the noise, and just to enjoy nature. Um, just to see the mountains and the animals and um, the stars. It's just uh, beautiful just to be able to enjoy the nature of God, God's nature. Um, and so in a way, when you see all these beautiful things, it's, it's just like a way that you could be reminded of God's beauty. Yet, I understand people when they ask me, if there is a God out there, why is there such a thing as suffering? Why is there such a thing as pain and sickness? Um, you think of the shooting in Parkland, Florida, where Nicholas Cruz, he slaughtered at least 17 unsuspecting students and adults at his old high school. You think of Syria where it is alleged that chemical weapons were deployed on innocent civilians. You think um, closer to home here in Brooklyn where a woman's body was found um, dismembered in a Brooklyn park Monday evening. You think of all of these different things and you're wondering a beautiful world should be our norm but it's not instead instead of beauty what we know is genocide and plagues and war and terrorism we know death we know cancer, malaria, and AIDS. We know injustice. This seems to be our norm. And just this year alone, some of us have personally experienced tragedies in our lives. Some of us have experienced much pain in our lives. You just think of Zoe and Methany, who shared with us what's happened in their lives. Why is a beautiful world not our norm? Why is a beautiful world not our norm? Why are we so comfortable in this broken world? Why are we not asking ourselves, why, O oh Lord? so comfortable in the reality that this world is broken and it is what it is, but this is not supposed to be. This is not what it's supposed to be. 
Most of us already know where I'm going with this. The answer, obviously, is found in the fall. The fall. And the fall is found in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Any disappointments you face, any hardships you encounter, any loved ones you lose, any health failures you have, finds its root in Genesis chapter 3. So turn with me to your Bibles, to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to talk about the fall. If you um, turn your pew Bibles, it's literally the first book in the Bible. It's page 2, and so it's right there um, in the beginning. Now the serpent was most cunning of all of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit from the trees of the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The passage continues, and we're going to finish reading uh, to up to verse 24. But I want us to stop here real quick. And I want us to observe some things um, from this passage. First of all, first of all, the passage speaks of the account of the fall. And to do that, it begins with the description of the serpent, the description of the serpent. Now, the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. That's what the passage says. The serpent was a natural part of God's created order. But Satan is the one who entered into the serpent. Okay, Satan entered into this serpent, and we'll find that in... Revelations chapter 12, verse 9. You don't have to turn it. You could just write it down um, for, your note, for your notes if you want to look at, check it out later on. Um, in Revelation 12, verse 9, it talks about the ancient serpent relating it to Satan himself. And I believe that the book of Revelation is hinting at the identity of the serpent here in Genesis 3. It is Satan himself. And so, ver and so we find um, in that first verse, it says, did God really say you can't eat from the, any tree in the garden? Did God really say? You see, the question itself is evil. He makes it seem as if God is restrictive and unfair. God never said that they were not to eat from any tree. You see, some of us need to stop thinking of God in terms of him being restrictive. God gave them the option of any tree except for one. 
You follow? Any tree except for one. And that here Satan comes along and he says, didn't, did God say you can't eat from any of the trees? Some people think to be Christian means that they would have to live under a God who is restrictive and who would deny them of any pleasures. But that is not true. And when we are tempted to sin, we are also at the same time tempted to distrust God's character. But not only does he question God and his character, did God really say? And the question, and it seems though, as he questions them, he positions himself as one who is on the side of the humans. Satan wants him to believe, Satan wants the humans to believe that he's after their interests. Satan wants you to just be free and enjoy the, delicacy, the delicacies of this world. <clears throat> the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the tree, from the fruit. We may eat the fruit from the tree in the garden, but from the fruit of the tree in the middle of God, in the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will surely die. Um, we don't see anywhere in the passage where God says, you will not touch it or eat it. Um, well, you, you don't have to touch it, but he did say you should not eat it. Um, the woman here is, um, in a way, she understands what it means if she does do what, if she does eat the fruit. If she eats it, she will die. But you know what Satan's response is? Satan says, you will not die. Verse 4. No, you will not die. Wow. God says, you will die. Satan says, you won't die. God says, you will die. And Satan says, you won't die. You see, Satan is no longer hiding his agenda here. He is showing the woman exactly where he stands. If she had any doubts in her mind whether or not this creature was with God, she now knows that this, with 100% certainty, that this serpent is against God. Note that to go against God's word is to go against God himself. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God's keeping you from something. He's keeping you from something that you otherwise would enjoy. And the woman, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Let's stop there real quick. You see how the temptation appealed to her senses? It says the, temp the temptation appealed to her taste. It says the woman saw that it was good for food. Okay? So the temptation appealed to her taste, but it also appealed to her sight. It says it was a delight to her eyes, but it also appealed to her pride. It says it, it was to be desired to be, make one wise. And by the way, how did we, how did Eve look at the tree and think, hmm, by eating this fruit, I'm going to become wise? How, how did that happen? If you recall, Satan told her, 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So in order, automatically she looked at that and she heard his words and she's like, wow, I'm going to all of a sudden become wise. That knowledge of good and evil that it was what she desired. And she believed that it would make her wise. I believe um, John was thinking of this passage in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. Um, you won't find it in the, um, in the screen, but just hear, hear what John says. He says, all that's in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. I believe all three elements of those senses are here in this passage. So let's look at the fall. Let's look at the fall. Let's look at the description of the fall. What exactly transpired in the fall? The, the passage says she took of its fruit and she ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. That, that was the fall. That was it. She took of the fruit, she ate it, she gave it to her husband, and he ate it. Okay. Usually, when we think of evil acts, we think of acts against our fellow man. Usually when we think of evil, we think of genocide, infanticide, racism, injustice, murder, human trafficking. But hardly do we ever look at the act in this passage as evil. You think about it. We don't see it as such a big deal. You see, sinning against our fellow man, yes, it's a, it's a big deal. It's more egregious to us to sin against another human being than it is to sin against God, a holy God. But this is treason against God. This is trusting in Satan's word over God's word. This is arrogance. This is saying, I will make the decision of what is good and evil. I will determine what is right and what is wrong. I don't need God to dictate to me what's right or what's wrong. I can maintain my independence from God. I don't need God or his word to dictate my life. Then, so thinking we were wise, we became fools. And so, that's what happened. Sinning against God is a big deal. And we're going to further look at the consequences of this sin. The consequences of sin. We'll find it from, starting from verse um, 7. Starting from verse 7. It says, then the, then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Um, let's continue. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. 
First of all, the passage says the first consequence that we see of sin is that both of their eyes were open. Both of their eyes were open and they realized that they were naked. Now, in the Bible and even in life, when someone says that my eyes were open, usually it's your eyes are open to the truth, right? Like usually it's something good for your eyes to be open. Even in the Bible, you'll find that in um, certain passages where it says this person's, their eyes were open. It's like, okay, you just gained wisdom. You gained some understanding that you otherwise did not have. That's usually what we know when we hear someone's eyes are open. But in this particular passage, in this particular verse, when it says that their eyes were open, this is not a good thing. This is not a good thing for their eyes to be open. They were now exposed to dimensions of reality that was dangerous for them. Some, the best way that I can explain this, for our eyes to be open to certain things, for us to be exposed to certain things, is not good for us all the time, right? You think of pornography, right? Pornography is something that you do not want your eyes to be open to. You do not want to see it. It's something that corrupts you. It corrupts your soul. It corrupts your inner being. You cannot just look at those things without any consequences, without any negative consequences to your soul. And so being exposed to everything is not good. You don't want to have an intimate knowledge with evil. You don't want to have an understanding of such evil. God, in his omniscience, he knows evil. He knows good and evil in the sense that he knows everything. But us, when we know evil, it's a different thing. We're tasting it. We're beholding, we're beholding it. It is corrupting our soul. And so for your eyes to be open to certain things is not always good. You don't want your eyes to be exposed to everything in this world. Like, for instance, the Bible says in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. This righteous man, he does not go that direction. He does not listen to anything. He does not watch anything. That is the righteous man. And so many people, um, consequently, a lot of people, they believe that because they have such an intimate knowledge with sin, because they have such an intimate knowledge with sin, they have a better understanding of why it's wrong. Okay? I, you probably don't know what I'm talking about. Um, but I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, many people, sometimes when I have a conversation with them, and they'll talk about their sins or they'll talk about their past sins. And I'll say, I'll ask a question such as, um, do you regret it? Do you regret committing those sins? Most times, nine out of ten times, some people would say, no, I don't regret it. Because I wouldn't be who I am right now if I didn't commit those particular sins. 
But what I'm saying here is this, is that you don't have to have an intimate knowledge of sin to know that it's wrong. You follow? All you need to do is to trust in God. Whether you don't have to go deep into that for, you to, for your character to be shaped. You follow? You don't have to have an intimate knowledge with sin to know it's wrong. Friends, all we got to do is just continually trust in God. And yes, we will know the bitter result. Oh, yes, it was wrong. But it's better to know, the re- it's better to know hey, look, I trusted God and I didn't go into that sin. I didn't have to know it intimately. You follow? And so Adam and Eve, now it says that, it says that her eyes were open. Both of their eyes were open. And, sorry, I just kind of lost my place a little bit. Yes, so now their eyes were open and now they have become corrupt to the core of who they were. Prior to the, to the fall, their souls were only exposed to good. Okay? Prior to the fall, their souls were only exposed to good. But now their souls have become corrupt and, e- and now they have become vulnerable to evil and corruption. And further, their bodies will now know decay and death. This is not a kind of knowledge that you want. You don't want to have such intimate knowledge with sin. In that way, Satan fooled them. And it says that they knew that they were naked. They didn't know before the shame that was associated with nakedness because they were living in a perfect world. But immediately after the eating the fruit, they were now ashamed. All of a sudden, they felt vulnerable and exposed. They were ashamed. They didn't want to be seen because they understand that they were so corrupt. And now they felt, I need to cover. I need to hide. I can't let this person see me as this. Let me think of someone who may have um, done something to his wife. He did something that he was not supposed to do behind her back. Um, maybe he, uh, you think of, uh, he, you know, looked at, he went on a website he wasn't supposed to look, go to and he sees his wife and all of a sudden he feels ashamed. Even though maybe, she, let's say she doesn't even know, he just feels like hiding. And they feel ashamed being even in each other's presence. And it says, now they heard God coming and they hid themselves from God too. They hid themselves from God. They hid themselves from God. This is our natural, our natural inclination when we sin is to hide from God. We're always afraid to go back to God. Or maybe it's just me. Is that just me? We always, we, we, it's almost as though we feel so, we feel ashamed and we feel like, man, Will God forgive me again? And so they hide themselves from God. God comes to them. He calls out to them. Notice that God is the one who calls out to them. Where are you? Do you think that God had a, you know, God actually didn't know where they were? God did not care for their actual location. 
God knows exactly where they were. God wanted a response from them. Their response was more important than God actually knowing where they were. God was showing his mercy in this particular scene. He says, where are you? And then the man said, I heard you. I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you? God asked Adam a straightforward question. Have you eaten from that tree? That is a straightforward question, right? It's a straightforward question that demands a straightforward answer. Either a yes or a no. Did you or did you not? Then Adam does something that we always do, right? When confronted, we tend to blame shift. Passing the blame to someone else. Notice that he passes the blame to both the woman and God. He says, the woman that you, that the, woman that y- the woman that you gave me. You follow? He says, it was the woman, but not only the woman, it was the woman that you gave me. She's the one that allowed me to eat. And then, yeah, I guess I did. I, I did eat. You see? The blame shift that's happening here. And then, and then, the, and then, then the Lord said, verse 13, then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate, and I ate. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the serpent um, and his punishment in a bit. But right now, I just want to. Uh, fast forward a little bit and go down to verse uh, 16. Verse 16 and what God says to the woman. God says to the woman, he said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband and yet he will rule over you. Um, So the punishment that we see here in this passage is that she's, her labor pains are going to increase. Okay? Her labor pains are going to increase. The very thing that God had told them before, be fruitful and multiply, now this mission to being fruitful and multiply is going to be a little bit more difficult. It's going to be harder. It's going to be very painful. And your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. This ruling over you it's um, also found in chapter 4 where God is um, speaking to Cain and he's saying that sin has a desire to rule over you. It's almost a, a, strong, a, a desire to dominate. And so what God is saying here is that this, um, <coughs> that sin, that this woman will have a desire to rule, to dominate, and yet he will dominate. It's almost as though there is going to be a lot of tension in the marriage. This is the result of the fall. This is the result of the fall. We be, we, we're, we're seeing just things that were not there before. And then he goes to the man and, he, and God says, the ground is cursed because of you. Okay? Again, remember, God didn't also God didn't only say be fruitful and multiply. God also said, um, 
to work the garden, right? To, to, to work it, to work it and keep it. So the same way that the woman's mission is going to be more difficult, the man, his mission is going to be more difficult as well. His working the ground is going to have thorns, it's going to have thistles. Doing that, it's going to, he's, it's going, there's going to, be, it's going to be painful labor. And it says um, the man is going to sweat, and that's the way that he's going to earn a living. The ground, the earth, is cursed because of man. Notice God doesn't say to the man, you are cursed. Notice that. He says the ground is cursed because of you. Um, later on, Romans actually picks this up, that the creation is, is longing for the time when um, he's, they're waiting for the, for, for they're, they're awaiting the sons of God. Right? They're waiting for a time where they're no longer subjected into this darkness, unto, the, unto this curse. So the earth is cursed. Man has to work harder. Women are going to experience labor pains, all of these different things. Um, and just thinking of the thorns and, and thistles, I just want to say something. I don't remember where I said it. I might have tweeted it some, maybe. Um, switching jobs will not reverse the curse, okay? You're still gonna have thorns and thistles in any job, in any career that you choose. Um, that this is our lot, really. Our lot is that we have to work hard and there are gonna be, I mean, it's go, there are gonna be certain things at our job that we are just gonna be like, I don't like this aspect of this job, okay? It's not gonna, we're not in a perfect world. Everything has been affected by the fall. Everything has been affected by the fall. And then he says, you will return back to dust. They will, meaning that they will eventually die. Um, so there are many ways in which we can look at those curses uh, that were imposed on the human beings. Now, um, number one, you could think of the curses as they have inherently gotten a curse. They have inherently um, received a curse by virtue of just simply sinning, right? So they sin, immediately when they sin, what happened? Their eyes are open, right? And you can also think of the curse as God imposing the curse on them. You follow? So not only were their eyes open, God says, cursed are you, right? So God is imposing this curse on them. So there could be both things going at play here in this, here, here in this passage, but ultimately what we know is that the result of sin Right? The result of sin is this chaos, is this messy world. Okay? That's what we know. Whether or not it's imposed, whether or not God is the one that's punishing um, this world, or, that, or, or, or God is the one that, is, um, that has cursed the ground, or it's just, just simply man's consequence, and he's just simply declaring that this is cursed. All we know is that we are living in a fallen world right now. We're living in a fallen world. And so here we are. This passage over here doesn't unpack all of the consequences of sin, of Adam and Eve. For you to understand the effects of Genesis chapter 3, you would have to read the rest of the Bible, chapter by chapter, to see 
all of the ways in which sin has affected this world. You follow? For us too, we, we see a few things over here and there. We see this ground is cursed and man's labor, you know, man is going gonna, is gonna to work harder and a woman is going gonna, gonna to be painful um, childbearing. But for us to understand and to appreciate the consequences of sin, you would have to read the rest of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way up to the book of Revelation so you can understand the true consequences of sin. And you would have to look around you in this world so you can understand the consequences of sin. All of it has its root here in Genesis chapter 3. And so that's how we read the Bible. We read the Bible as we begin to read the Bible. We have to understand the Bible in the fact that God is the one who created the world and he created it as a good. God created the world as good and he created it to reflect his glory and his goodness. But you also have to read the Bible understanding that we are we are fallen human beings. We are under the fall. Okay, you have to read the Bible in the light of those two things. And obviously, um, Stephen is going to preach on redemption, so you can understand, um, you know, clearer how to understand the word. But I just want to highlight a few things real quick. Um, number one, that sin has been passed down from generation to generation. Romans five verse twelve it says, "Sin entered to the world." through one man and death through sin. Um, therefore, death had spread to all people. Basically, what the passage is saying is that sin has been passed down from generation to generation. So Adam and Eve were the first, and everybody since then has inherited sin. Okay? Nobody is excluded, except for Jesus, which we'll have a chance to talk about next week. But nobody has been excluded. We all have been born in sin. So when you were born, when you were born, you were born with a sinful nature by virtue of simply being a human being. That's what we've inherited. That's what we've inherited. Um, in Psalm 51, I believe 61 verse 5, David says that in sin my mother has conceived me. Basically, as I was in the stomach, when my, my mom uh, and my, when my parents conceived me, bam, immediately I inherited this thing called sin. And so, this is us. Life is just not fun. We look, at, we look around us and we see pain, we see suffering, we see hardship, and we wonder, what do we do with this? How do we wrestle with this truth? It's kind of hard for me because I was, um, you know, I know I'm trying not to step on Stephen's toes. I'm just trying to help us to appreciate and to understand we live in a dark world. I want us to soak that in, that that sin found in Genesis chapter 3 has traveled all the way to us in 2018, and we are still facing the consequences of that sin. Few things we could look from the passage. Um, I know I didn't put any next steps up there. I'm sorry, um, but you know I, I'm gonna. I'm, we're gonna think through certain things. <laughs> Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. Um, 
Rachel did a good job, by the way. It was great good work. Um, Some things that we could think of, um, but I'm going to give some application for us to think through um, as a result of the fall, and I hope that that will kind of um, help us to wrestle with these things this week and anticipate for next week's sermon. You follow? Okay, so the first thing that we realize is, I mean, this is not really part of the sermon, but we could understand just the, the seriousness of temptation, right? When you look at this passage, you, you kind of see how how serious temptation could grab, grab us. Um, what, you could ask yourself, what in your life are you tempted to trust in more than the word of God? When we enter into temptation, it makes an appeal to our senses. Okay? Whenever temptation hits me, it appeals to me, to my senses, to my sense of taste, to my sense of eyes, to my pride. Right? If I do this, you know, maybe this will happen and then, you know, and, I'm, and I'm, that's what it's appealing to. And it, it makes itself feel so good. If I just enter into this temptation, if I just, if I just um, satisfy the demands of this temptation, I will feel much better. And it feels so real and it feels so desirous. I can almost taste it so near to me. But it is a false promise. Temptation is always a false promise. It's always going to promise you something that it cannot really produce. And every temptation should be viewed as such. A false promise. I don't care how you feel right now. I don't care what your body is telling you. That if, it, like, if I just entertain this sin, I promise I will feel so much better. I don't care. All of its promises are false. So that temptation will always lie to you. And you know this to be true. The temptation comes to you. You engage in the sin only to find yourself saddened and depressed in the end. Number two, one, another thing that I realize is the reality of a fallen world, that we live in a fallen world. If you live long enough, friends, you will suffer. If you live long enough, friends, you will suffer. There is no escaping this reality. Those whom you love may die. Incredible sins may be committed against you. Incredible sins may be committed by you. Sickness may overtake you. We don't know what will happen to us. You know, I don't know if I will die from cancer. I don't know. I don't know what if I will have like a heart failure in the next month or so. I just don't know. I don't know. Because we're living in a fallen world. So, therefore, do not put your hope and trust in the things of this world. Do not put your hope and trust in the things of temporary value. If you rest your hope too much on your family and on your riches and on your career and all of these 
things which God created as good, if you rest your hope and all your weight in those things, then you're not living for what's right. You're going to be even more saddened because all of your eggs were on that basket. So take, a, take some time during this week to ponder at things that are worth eternal value. Not the things that are passing away. The Bible says that the world and its, all of its desires are passing away. And so take some time to think through the value, the things that you value in this life. Are they passing away? Another thing uh, that I want us to think about is that sin is bound up in human beings once they were conceived in the stomach. Okay? Sin is bound up in human beings once they are conceived. It has implications. That has implications. Why? Why is that so important for me to point out? Because we should not, if, if, if I was born in sin, it means that I should not trust all of my inclination and all of my desires. The thing that people say now as an excuse is, I was born that way. I, since I was born that way, therefore I can satisfy this desire. This is who I am in the core of who I am. And, and what I'm telling you is that that is no excuse for sin because we all are born in sin. Okay? So that's one thing that we need to think about. Let's think about the fact that, yes, we are all born in sin. And maybe some of us might be inclined to particular sins that others of us are not inclined to commit. Your inclination might be pornography. Your inclination might be some uh, 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 hatred. Whatever it might be, we are born in sin. And you need to understand that as a reality. But it also has implications for your children, right? It also has an implication for your children. That nice little cuddly baby that you have. Sorry, Rachel, your, your, your baby's awesome. That nice little cuddly baby you have is in sin. They're sinners. You think of the worst? You think of the worst? Someone mentioned this, to, mentioned this earlier today. And, and man, when I was just reading the newspaper about the person who their body was found dismembered in the park, I'm like, that's, how does, how does a human being, how can a human being do that? And one of my friends, he said this. He said, you know that person who murdered that woman? He was once a baby. Once a little, like just a little baby, a little, and you think, oh man, what an innocent baby. What a little nice innocent baby. What the, why I'm bringing this up, why am I bringing this up is because, yes, you know, okay, right. Our children are cute, they're awesome, they're great, but man, we must, we must stir them the right, steer them the right way. Because if we leave them to their own devices, if we leave them to their own devices, they're going to run towards sin. Some of us are already recognizing that, like, man, this kid, man, I don't know, my child is just really acting up these days. And you're seeing certain things in them, and you're like, where did that come from? Don't let it go. Don't let it keep going that direction. Continually discipline your children. 
And that's truly, that's true love when you're disciplining your children. And of course, we're going to point them to the hope that Stephen is going to talk about next week. Um, and I guess that's another way of us going through the parenting class together so that um, we could be able to better understand how we could uh, raise our children. Um, but I didn't want us to leave like that. I want us to look at verse uh, 15, um, chapter 3, verse 15. It says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike, you will strike his heel. Basically, this is a prediction. One day, I'm going to someone, someone, your offspring, the woman's offspring, is going to crush the head of the serpent. Yes, the serpent is going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush that. And I want us to, I want us to relish in that. I want us to look forward to that. I want us to, to, look, to an, look in anticipation for this glory. We're in Genesis 3 right now. But, but let's, let's, let's look at it. Let's look at this. From Genesis 3, I want us to look forward to next week's sermon when this victorious king will crush the head of the serpent. Will crush the head of the serpent. And so I want us to anticipate this as we are walking through this together that the head of the serpent will be crushed. And perhaps this curse will be reversed. And perhaps we might have hope after all. There is this glimmer of hope, even in Genesis chapter 3. And I want us to see that as well. Let's pray.